Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 93. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our special guest is Chris Bliss. Before we talk to Chris about his amazing juggling career, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA. The IJA stands for International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Also, I'm a sponsor with my new book, Alex the Great, available at Amazon.com. The story of a young street performer trying to make it at San Francisco's Pier 39. And keep your eyes out for my new book coming soon, Budsuckers. They have the munchies for blood. All right, no more brouhaha. Drop everything. Get ready for Chris Bliss. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 93. My special guest, Mr. Chris Bliss. Hello, Chris. Hey, you really did put on your podcasting voice. I did. This is my professional podcaster voice. Are you using your podcast guest voice or is this your normal Chris Bliss voice? Um, I don't have a guest voice. No, this is it. This is what I get. Yeah, this is what my wife has to listen to. It's, it's been very popular all these years. Obviously, one of the best stand-up comics working today. But before I get that, this is a juggling podcast. So let's go back to the very, very beginning. Where were you born and what did your parents do for a living? I was born in Washington, D.C., and my dad was a um, securities lawyer, and my mother was a homemaker. As a kid, was juggling a part of your life at all, or the theater or the circus? What were you like as a kid? None of that. That's a good question. I don't have the greatest memory for all that stuff, so apparently I was unremarkable as a child, and I don't remember it. What is your earliest memory? Do you remember going to school? You know what? I was overweight. I wasn't terribly athletic. And it's interesting because I, I learned to juggle, I think I was 16, 17 years old, I think. My sister taught me. She was going to Catholic University, getting her master's in fine arts. And one thing they make you take in theaters, they make you take juggling as a coordination exercise. You know, the same way they do the trust exercise where they where you're supposed to fall and people catch you in a circle. Mm -hmm. They make you learn juggling. So she came home from Catholic University and said, hey, I just learned this. And she taught me just the basic one, two, three. And it was really good because I was way too up in my head before juggling came along. And juggling was this thing that was purely physical, no verbal for me anyway. I never did the talking juggling. I never did routines. I always did to music. I never did comedy routines with the juggling. So it kind of really helped uh, put me back into balance, you know, to have this physical nonverbal thing to go along with this non-physical verbal thing that was always going on up in my head. And do you remember seeing jugglers on TV before you learned? I mean, I remember the Ed Sullivan show, but not really jugglers. I remember, you know, Topo Gijo and Jackie Leonard and stuff like that. But I don't really remember. I There was nothing particularly. Uh, the juggling for me was probably more about my love for music than it was about the juggling. And did you grow up playing music? Were you a musician? No, I learned to juggle the same time the first Walkman was coming out. Okay. The right. Sony Walkman, a cassette player. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had one, sure. <laughs> For you kids who were going to the museum later today. So I was listening to music over those little headphones, first time ever, right? And I just learned how to juggle. So that's why the two of them immediately went together. And the juggling and the music, the juggling was a listening exercise. And I also think that's why people like it, because they hear the music more clearly and particularly if it's a familiar song, I think bringing it in through the visual mm -hmm. uh, of the juggling and somehow the performance of it, one way or another, it re helps reconnect people. I tried to figure out why anybody even liked it. You're talking about your viral video, of course. Yeah. Well, I'm just talking about the whole thing of all we, of juggling the music. And I never knew why people liked it. I thought they were just, I mean, come on, it was 1970. 
there were a lot of reasons. You know, I had black lights and strobe lights. Of course, people liked it. Well, I think there's two ways people present juggling to music. A lot of times the music is a background track. They're not exactly juggling to the music. That way, in case they drop, like they don't fall behind it. What I always admired about your, your music and your juggling is you juggled to the music. So you sort of interpreted what you heard visually. Was that sort of a conscious choice or just how you sort of developed? Well, again, that's, it's just the only, I mean, I learned to juggle at the same time I got a Walkman. I mean, it's as simple as that. I used to love to listen to stuff over and over and over and really try and hear everything that was going on. And my older brother uh, developed, was one of the lead engineers on a product called Solid State Logic, which was, SSL was the first total recall, all digital recording console in the world had them. And my brother, who never graduated from high school, was their vice president and uh, one of their lead engineers. And the reason was that Doug heard all, all the instruments and he wanted people to be able to hear them the way that he heard them. And so he helped, he'd always worked in the digital thing where you, the instruments all separate out. I, I think they call it psychoacoustics. Where you can hear every, every, every individual instrument. Is that the idea? And you can hear them are in different three dimensions. And in your three dimensional space, they're coming from someplace different. In other words, the drum down and to the left and the, you know, so other the juggling was just a way to get more in touch with the music right from the, right from the very start for me. And what year were you born? Well, how old are you, Chris? I was born in 1952 and uh, I'll be 69 this year. Yeah, I think it's interesting because there was definitely a generation before mine. I was born in 61 and there was like a generation of jugglers before me, uh, which you included you and like Chris Cremo and jugglers like that. Well, the idea of juggling to music was a lot more popular than juggling uh, and speaking. Did you ever try to juggle and talk at the same time? Or that just never even... Because you went on to become a, a very popular comedian, but you never attempted to combine the juggling with the comedy? You know, I think I tried to do one street performance one time, which wasn't really a street performance. I mean, with, you know, a, a, a boombox at some park in San Francisco when, I don't know, I was 20 years old or something. And play some music and and it just it was <laughs> so uncomfortable and i think i made it a dollar fifty so you're uncomfortable talking on stage as a juggler but yet you, you became a comedian so you became comfortable talking on stage uh what, what was your growing up what was comedy like in your life growing up were you always interested in stand-up comedy thanks to ed sullivan there were a lot of really good acts to watch and it was every different kind like uh, from jackie leonard and then of course you had uh Carlin came through at some point. Bill Cosby was on television all the time. I don't know what you'd call, what level comedy you'd call, but it's just really good comedy out there. I was in college and I realized if I stayed in college, I'd wind up in my dad's law firm. And so it was just like, how do I avoid that? So I dropped out of college, started traveling with a rock band as their rock and roll juggling act. This is in the early 70s in uh, Southern, in, in around the Pacific Northwest. Were you always attracted to it? Was it something you knew you wanted to do from an early age? Well, I didn't know I could do it professionally. I was always attracted to juggling because uh, I liked Hollywood. I liked magic. But I remember I saw Chris Cremo on TV and I thought he was so different than me. He was so handsome and classy and he had all the tools I didn't <laughs> think I had. And I thought, well, I can't be a juggler because that's what jugglers are like. They're, they're slick and they're graceful and they don't drop. And I hadn't really heard of comedy jugglers until uh, Michael Davis and the Karamazov brothers. And then when I saw the combination of comedy and juggling, I thought that I, that I could do, that I could excel at. I didn't think I could make it at either one of them individually, but the two together I thought was a very good fit for me. 
Well, and working the crowd, even as a comic, I'm not good at working. And, you know, the street performing aspect of juggling is all about working the crowd. It's a lot more about engaging. There's a lot less time spent juggling than there is working the crowd. So uh, that's something I've never been comfortable with. I've never talked to an audience a lot as a, as a stand-up. I've never, hi, how are you? Where are you from? <laughs> I, I don't get heckled very often. I don't know why. I, I think because you seem intelligent. I, I, think when you, when, I think when you perform, you seem intelligent. And I think when, when, when uh, comics are more intelligent, I think they get heckled less because people are more insecure, I think, about uh, challenging them. And your, your setup is very intelligent, very thoughtful. Uh, that maybe, you know, that's probably true. Uh, but uh, the juggling thing was, like I said, I mean, it was, it was much more in a, it, it was something really deeply personal that brought me back into much better balance as a person and got me and kept me away from being, when you go home from your third year of university and uh, in that year I went from the dean's list to six incompletes. Mm. So juggling can have an impact on your life. Well, I went home and I told my dad, I'm quitting college, uh, world's most famous job. I said, I'm going to be a rock and roll juggling star because <laughs> I was living with the band by that point. So it sounds like the way you came up was different than me. Like I came up through the streets, Renaissance fairs, doing a lot of talking, a lot of interacting with the audience. And it sounds like you came up in a totally different way with these rock audiences. So you're all purely visual. What was your first experience as a professional juggler? Oh, I think it was uh, Midnight Movies when I was going to, not that's not professional, that, that would be amateur because I didn't get paid for it. Getting paid for it? Probably a natural foods restaurant in Eugene, Oregon, I think, called Mr. Natural. What was Midnight Movies? Is that like a, a, a movie that you go out and just kind of get up there and do something? At the university was always some silent film or some stuff. And, you know, we're talking 1970, 71. Rocky Horror Show would be a perfect example of a midnight movie. Only I think 1960 was even before then. It'd be stuff like the Hunchback of Notre Dame, silent films. <laughs> Somebody get up and start playing the piano that was on the side of the stage. It was in a huge lecture hall. And then in between uh, some short feature and the main feature, and the short feature would be Laurel Art. Some, some, something that stoners would like, all right? Yeah. I convinced two friends of mine to jump up on stage with me, and we put on the drum solo from Do What You Like, which is Blind Faith, which is Ginger Baker, mm -hmm. just probably the last eight minutes of it, not the whole <laughs> solo, and all started juggling to it. And my two friends bailed in about 10, 15 seconds, and people uh, loved it. It wasn't really good, very good, but it was certainly right for the altered state that they were in. My first paid gig was for that natural foods restaurant, I think. Travel with the rock band in the Pacific Northwest in, what, 1972, the 60s had just gotten there. The visual thing, you know, and I had black lights and a I had a strobe light. I, I was undoubtedly the first strobe light juggler because it was like 1972. I had the stuff that a friend of mine took the stuff that was in the strobe light control panel and put it inside a Wawa pedal. Mm, okay. A guitar pedal. So I could turn on and off the strobe and adjust the speed of the flash with my foot while I was juggling. Yeah, you controlled all your lights with your feet while you performed. For a long time until I got uh, and then I made a huge jump to a big uh, stage, which was very cool, programmed on, onto a computer. It was hysterical. I mean, in some way, it's kind of funny. A couple of these UV lamps on uh, that were the mercury vapor lamps with the big, huge fly eye lens on them. I mean, it was totally psychedelic and it was the right time and, and shiny objects in front of a rock crowd in 1973. Come on. How long of a set were you doing? I probably had two or three songs and then added another two or three songs. And it was all at first improvs too organized of a word for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, how'd you get involved with the lighting and everything? Was that sort of a conscious choice? Like the way I'm going to make my juggling entertaining is by adding these other elements 
were you already involved in that kind of stuff or? I learned how to juggle when I was like 17. The next year I graduated high school, I went away to college. Everybody in the dorm room had a UV poster. <laughs> right, black light. I was yeah. juggling tennis balls. Yeah, black light poster because that's what I learned to juggle with tennis balls. Tennis balls fluoresce. Yeah. So people said you should do that under a black light and it looked great. It was fun and it especially looked great for from my altered point of view, right? Mm -hmm. And then somebody said, can you do that with a strobe light? So none of these were my ideas. This wasn't, right. I love it when they call some psychotic killer a uh, mastermind. There was no <laughs> masterminding going on. This was just people going, hey, can you do that? Hey, can you do that? Oh, that's cool. You know, was, that's how deep it was. Well, at least you weren't a, at least you weren't a tortured uh, loner. I think that's what they usually are. They're masterminds or tortured loners. The, the psycho killers. Right. No, I wasn't. Yeah. The Ted Kaczynski of juggling. No, that wasn't me. So you put all these things together and you started sort of working with some rock bands. Uh, what was the first, like, uh, these were like small time rock bands. Like what was the first sort of bigger show that you did where you thought, wow, this is really working. And by the way, somewhere I have a contract with a guy named Larry Arnold from Superstar Productions in Medford, Oregon for two shows for $25. Nice. Who books that gig? <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Hey, we all got to start somewhere, you know, 25 bucks, you know, that was, I was always amazed that people even paid me to juggle. It took me a long time to, to get over that fact that people would actually pay me to juggle. So I think I opened at some university in Southern Oregon for Leo Kotke. Do you know who Leo Kotke is? Yeah, guitar player, right? Like a 12 string guitar player? Virtuoso 12 string player uh, and really funny singer, by the way, too. Uh, Kotke's an, uh, an act worth seeing. So I opened for him at this concert at this just some university concert. And he says, uh, I do an annual Christmas concert in Minneapolis at Symphony Hall. Would you come and be a part of that concert? <laughs> but Emmy Lou Harris was his opening act. Oh, nice. Okay. And it's Symphony Hall, and it's his hometown, and it's a Christmas concert, and it's full. Right. And what are you like, about early 20s at this time? Just out of college at this point? This is probably 73. It might be 74. It was 74, so I'm 22. Okay. And it All was right. so much fun. <laughs> okay. Right. And uh, my brother happened to come up and see that concert. And he came up with this and this goofy thing. I don't think I ever did it again. You remember Legs Eggs that uh, the pantyhose yeah, used pantyhose. to come in? Yeah, the pantyhose used to come in like a big egg. Yeah. And the egg, and they had some eggs that were different colors, but they had a silver egg, right? Yeah. So my brother said, let's get some of these Legs Eggs. We'll tie model rocket parachutes onto them. Oh. We'll fill the parachutes with glitter. And you can and we'll fill the egg with something that makes it heavy enough to throw. You wrap it around. And at the end of your show, you throw it out over the audience. Oh, it comes right? floating down. OK. Yeah, and I had three or four of these. And I mean, you know, it's a symphony concert. They got six super troopers in the hall. It's so there's this incredible lighting. And at the end of the show and the show went well, I don't remember. I couldn't tell you the music or anything. The show went sure. great. And I threw these things out over the audience and all of them opened, and the glitter came raining down through this. It was my brother's goofy idea, right? 1974 place went crazy. What can I tell you? Highest moment of my career. No, but it was, <laughs> that's the first real concert I ever did. And it was just so much fun. Not to mention the musicians. Incredible. And that's quite a moment, isn't it? When you realize, like you were saying, you were going to university, you were kind of, you could have gone to your dad's business. You're looking at this straight life. And here it is, the end of the 60s, early 70s. And you discover this thing, right? This, this juggling, this ability to perform. You, did you realize, wow, this is going to be my my future at that point. Well, at first I thought it was going to be a, a very quick ride to the top. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> right. 
I have a joke I've been doing for uh, actually as part of a one man show. It's when I went and told my father I was going to be the world's most famous juggler. He tried to bribe me out of it, but if he, he didn't take it seriously, he showed no respect, so I got offended. But yeah. if he just said to me, name three famous jugglers. Now, see, you can name three famous jugglers, but they're only famous to other jugglers. No, even today, if, if you said, name a famous magician, people go, oh, Houdini, uh, David Copperfield, uh, you know, Chris Angel. I think it's even worse today that no one could even name a single juggler. I think at a point, people could have maybe mentioned the Karamazov brothers. That's true. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And Michael Davis. I mean, he was working at the White House, for God's sake. I don't think they would have known him by name. When, when did you start using the name Chris Bliss? What's your birth name? It's Christopher Dickey. Oh, Christopher Dickey. Well, that's a good comedy name, too, though. Did you ever think about being Christopher Dickey? Yeah, and Chris Dickey and his musical balls was not really a, a, a good name for the act. How'd you come up with Chris Bliss? That's such a perfect name. My father used to call me Christopher Blistopher, and uh, and my grandmother's uh, uh, name was Bliss. So, and my mother said afterwards, we should have named that. Should have been your middle name. I don't know what we were thinking. My middle name's Bruce. Her her first name was Bliss. Your grandmother's name was Bliss. Yeah, her last name oh. was Bliss. Oh, her last name. Oh, how about that? Interesting. Because I try to think of other performers whose names rhymed. I can only think of Harry Carey. Oh, that's so, true. Was, I couldn't think of other ones. I thought, wow, what a great idea to have that the first name and the last name rhyme like that, Chris Bliss. It's a beautiful, beautiful showbiz name, I think. I mean, I, I don't remember when I became Chris Bliss. I think I went by another name for a while. But, uh, oh, I went by a very embarrassing name at the beginning that people will have to do some deep web, web searching for. Oh, I'm tell us. Gonna... Tell us. No, can't let you know. No, I don't think I can. Okay. All right. Well, let you... it wasn't Archibald Leach, was it? That was Cary Grant's real name. Yeah, this is how planned it all was. When in my last year of high school, some friends said, will you sing in our in our uh, fake greaser band, Sparky and the Plugs? <laughs> okay? Right. All the songs were about cars. And I said, sure. So the guy created Sparky and the Plugs. The lead singer's name was Drippy Moon, the man whose voice makes the women swoon. Nice. It's a goof character in a goof band, Drippy Moon. So that's what I started juggling as, Drippy Moon. Oh, so you were Drippy Moon. The, the woman that had his voice made women swoon. Yes, well, but in this case, whose balls made women swoon. I see. Drippy Moon, whose balls made women swoon. I think Chris Bliss was a better choice. Yeah, well, a much better choice. And somewhere in between there, I took the, the last name of the woman who was doing mind control over me. Bliss. So, the worst. No, no, no. Her name was something else, but I won't, that one I'll keep to myself. Okay. And then finally, I became Chris Bliss and never looked back. Now, let's talk about uh, the, the Jackson tour. So you're doing these smaller concerts, Leo Kotke and all that. When did you get discovered and actually go on the Jacksons, the, the Jackson family world tour in 1984? Because that was a big deal. I, I moved to Chicago in 1982 from uh, Minneapolis. And the guy I knew was co-promoting with the biggest, with jam concerts, the biggest uh, guy, a friend named Danny Zalisco was co-promoting with jam concerts. And they had an incredible, beautiful uh club called uh it's still there best music club i've ever been in 700 seater called the park west close to downtown in uh, near north side in uh, chicago and i was over everybody you know, all sorts of wonderful acts christine mcvee and uh, blood sweat and tears and i mean all this you know these great acts it was so much fun and they but they were also doing major shows so i i don't remember the first show that they put me on but they put me on some shows and, and it worked out as a great opening act for concerts because you didn't need to do a sound check. There was very little equipment to move, so didn't get in the headliner's way, blah, blah, blah. Asia was on tour. Mm -hmm. uh, I love Asia. They're a great, great band. Yeah. And their, and their album was unexpectedly went to number one. 
And they'd fired two opening acts already. And they were coming to play the Auditorium Theater, which is a gorgeous theater in Chicago. And they needed an opening act. So Jam put me on the show. And then Jam's next show was, uh, and that's like a 3,000-seat hall. Yeah. Sold out. Next show was uh, another hall like that. And uh, after that, uh, Asia said, why don't you do the tour? So after that tour, I started getting great offers to do opening acts. To do, I got the offer to open for Clapton and off Cedar Rapids, Iowa or something. Open for Kenny Loggins. Kenny Loggins' manager turned out to be the guy who became the tour manager on the Jacksons tour two years later. And um, they needed an opening act. Uh, Larry Larson explained this to me. Uh, he said, you're not the opening act. He said, there's a support act that sells 20, 25 of the tickets. All right. They're there so the, to increase the uh, gross. Right. There's an opening act. The opening act is on the same record label or has the same management as the headline. This is a career slot for them. Yeah, it's got exposure. Exposure slot. Yeah. So what you are is you're the merchandising act. You're there so we have an hour more to sell the kids merchandise. You got to understand he's saying this to my face, right? And I just burst out laughing because I thought that's perfect. <laughs> well, that's what we did too because we were doing an opening act and they'd want us to do an opening so they could have then the, the time between the opener and the headliner to sell merchandise. So it's, it's, it's money and you know, dollars and cents. Yeah, and you also had no like, sound check, not like a band sound check. I paved the way for you guys. Where's my cut? <laughs> no, and, and so, guys, that's what they wanted. They didn't want a band. They wanted someone who could get up there like you said, not cause any trouble, not get in the way. Because every time you have to sound check a band, it goes on and on and on. So if you want to sound check the juggler, it should only take like a minute. Right. And the uh, the headliner loves it because the sound is set for them. Yeah. And not a knob gets turned between when they've wrapped up. Nothing gets turned. All right. Although a knob did get, I tell you what, once, and it wasn't great. And by that time, I was pretty good. My physicality was strong. And I'm probably doing four songs set, 25 minutes or so. All right. Is that all with three balls or do you, do you mix it up with some other stuff? I think there was a four ball thing in there. And there might've been at one point, there was a thing I did with uh, scarves. And this is something I, I, I tried to give these scarves to somebody. I don't know if they ended up using them or not, but this was cool. You'd like this, Daniel. Mm -hmm. They weren't just the chiffons. The chiffons just sort of float. Yeah. I tied onto the front of the chiffons. I tied a piece of uh, lace, heavy lace. Okay. That was cut like a, a diamond on a card. Okay, like the four diamonds. Mm -hmm. And then I tied uh, a knot in the front of the lace. All right. And, and then I tied the chiffon on the back of that. Well, they look like birds oh. going through the air. You right. could actually throw it up 10 feet in the air if you wanted to. Because that's some weight to it. Yeah, it had some weight to it. And you could get some really nice things. You couldn't, improvising was a little bit hard, but you, I mean, you could throw them around your back and stuff. I mean, but they looked very nice for a short period of time, particularly if they're fluorescing. So that was just for like, I think for part of one who song, I went to the sky. I tried to have it have a visual build. I'll start off regular lights, regular everything, nothing. Second one, I had some mirror balls, which would just cut your hands up. Yeah. I'm sure if you ever tried mirror balls, you know what I'm talking about. I did. Not pleasant. Yeah. But they look great under the lights. They yeah. look different under the lights. They almost look like they weren't there. <laughs> like you were juggling just sparkling light. Yeah. And then there'd be go to the black light song and then some strobes and the scarves. And then I would finish with a day in the life with a huge... Uh, flash pots at the end of it, you know, boom. <laughs> and did you have any uh, any interaction with the Jacksons or with Michael Jackson or were you kind of kept separate? I met him like twice. Once at the end of the tour, he had his picture taken with everybody that was on the tour at the old Variety Arts Theater oh, in okay. downtown Los Angeles. Yeah, right? yeah. 
And the other time he uh, accidentally walked into my dressing room. <laughs> right. Uh, and I was sitting with the band leader, uh, a guy named Pat Leonard, brilliant musician, Patrick Leonard. And he walked in and I swear to God, I'm not making this up. I didn't re- put the two and two together for like 20 years. He walks in and goes, oh, I'm sorry. I was looking for the little boy's room. Oh. <laughs> now I'm thinking maybe he wasn't, maybe he was looking for the little boy's room. I don't know. And uh, I think I said something really dumb like, uh, no, this is my dressing room. It just looks like the way to the toilet (laughs) or something like that. And Pat said, this is your opening act. Did he have any idea that it was a juggler on the tour at all or he just. He and then he looked and I swear to God, this is the only thing he said. And then he left. He said, oh, it it must take a lot of rhythm to do what you do. Well, that's nice. And uh, right. And I just looked at him and I said, you too. And that was the conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the only conversation I ever had with him. And that's uh, verbatim according to my bad memory. And he's quite tall, wasn't he? I mean, he's taller than you think. Is that is that right? Michael Jackson. The thing that struck me most was uh, I wasn't a big Michael Jackson fan, but as a performer, pretty incredible. I'd be on the side of the stage waiting to watch him go on. Right. He's standing six feet away from me. On the side of the stage, he looks like, looks like a breeze would knock him over. Yeah. He takes two steps onto the stage and he becomes 10 feet tall. And that, that's unbelievable to me. Yeah. I looked at that and I thought that's, I didn't consciously think you need to learn how to do that, but I thought that's powerful. Yeah. And of course you can't really, you can't learn how to do what he did. You're obviously there in the same situation. Like you're in front of all those people. Was it like 3,000, 4,000? How, how, how big of shows are we talking about? No, the Jackson, the largest audience on that tour was 63,000. Sure, 63,000. The whole tour was stadiums. So what do you think that was like? Because you know what you felt like, you know, getting that that small bit of a bump. What do you think he felt like to have all that love from 63,000 people? That must have been something. Everything was super worked out, super theatrical. Yeah. That show went like a clock. I have no clue. I think it would be if, if you were a human being yeah. and you were getting that kind of adulation every night, I think you would wonder what it's not can't be good for you. Well, it's, it's a bit of a of a, a godlike situation where you're basically being worshipped. I always thought that's why Chappelle quit doing comedy for a couple of years, why he walked away from Chappelle's show. Yeah. Because he could walk out on stage and say anything and people would laugh. Well, I think that's the Steve Martin story, too, that where he gave up stand up because it became more of a, a call and respond kind of situation as opposed to actual comedy. But there's no creativity happening there. If you can't trust the audience to tell you what's good and what's bad. Yeah. And of course, anybody who gets to a certain level deals with that. I never had that problem. Well, you see it. You see it like when you work with a, a, someone people know, whether it's Roseanne Barr or, or uh, Howie Mandel. There's a good 10, 20 minutes where they're willing to just wait just for you to, to be good. I mean, they, you get a lot of slack by being someone they came to see. You really have to be bad to lose that kind of acceptance. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's true. But it's also when you're getting to where Chappelle was got to, yeah. you've got an audience, half of those people know who you are, half of them don't know, and you're riding that wave of creativity on stage, and that energy, which I've had a little bit of experience with, but not much, that energy is super creative. Yeah. If that's what you're looking for on stage, and you can't get it anymore, because people are going to laugh if you recite the alphabet, <laughs> and now, and Chappelle's got that now, because yeah. nobody knows what he's going to say, so they're paying real attention. So he's figured out a way to get that, even with his stardom. Well, I think it helps to be brilliant. I think it helps when you come out with things and you say things in a moment where people are like, wow, what, what's Chappelle going to say about this? 
Because he had yeah. some very good things to say recently about the insurrection, about the Capitol. And I thought it was very powerful stuff yes. he said recently. Yeah, and he trusts himself implicitly, and he does have things to say, and he's consciously consciousness-raising. I don't mean in every piece of material, sure. but if you watch through his show, you'll go, there it is. He just did, he just mentioned Emmett Till. When was the last time anybody mentioned Emmett Till in a comedy set? Probably Dick Gregory. I think I watched like four of his specials recently, because uh, I really haven't watched too much. Like I would watch the Chappelle show occasionally, but I wasn't that familiar with him as a stand-up, just pure stand-up. And you watch it, you go, okay. You know, you watch him or Bill Hicks or guys who really are yeah. not only good comics, but they're saying something. They know their own minds extremely well. They trust themselves. And there's a power to it. And then when you see the guy actually dropping things like truth and reconciliation into his material, you just go, oh, good. you can't do it all the time. You can't do 60 minutes of truth and reconciliation. Yeah. Carlin at the end was telling, listen to it. It sounds like a prophet. <laughs> right if you listen to the last three, four years of Carlin. But it's not the kind of stuff you're going to laugh at a lot. Well, I guess it's happened to Lenny Bruce, too. Like, Lenny Bruce, at a certain point, just wanted to communicate his ideas. And people are like, no, we want to laugh. We don't mind the ideas, but we're not here for the ideas. We're here to laugh. And you can't lose that. I used to say a little bit of stupid helps the smart go down. Yeah, I think so. You want to challenge people, and if you challenge them too much... I think you definitely put them off. I mean, unless they're there specifically. But there's nothing wrong with goofy funny if it makes you laugh. I've got a few really stupid jokes that I think are really funny. If I didn't think they were funny, I wouldn't do them. But they're not. But they're yeah. just goofy. Well, I think this is a good lead into uh, to your viral video because if we look at your video, this is what, 2006 now. This is uh, your brush with, with fame. I think the idea was that a lot of jugglers, there was some backlash against jugglers because they thought it was... They didn't think it was good juggling. They thought, why are people liking this? It's 2006. YouTube is, is established. But you became one of the first viral video stars. How did that come about? Was that an intentional thing? Or did someone put the video up? It just happened. How did that come about? That video was shot uh, in 2002 in Montreal. At a Just for Laughs? At the Just for Laughs Festival. Mm -hmm. It had sat up on my corporate website as a sales tool since, since then. Right. To be honest with you, this is that's why I was so focused. It's worst, again, it's the worst possible motivation. I mean, I was only doing that piece anymore in my act, yeah. and I didn't have any video that wasn't from 1984 of the juggling, because I was going to use the concert video. I wasn't going to use juggling inside some club somewhere. It just looks crappy. Yeah, yeah. And I had Tonight Show comedy stuff, so it's like, I, so they said, would you come up and do the comedy on the English side? And Gilbert uh, Rosan said, Monsieur Blitz, would you give us, would you perform your mark of trade on the French festival? <laughs> so yeah. all I had to do was walk out on stage, and that's the Saint Denis Theater up there, which you've done, I guess. Uh, maybe 30 years ago, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it's still, it's just beautiful. This was yeah. 20 years ago. And just walk out on stage, do that piece, and walk off. Right. Four minutes, four and a half minutes, whatever it is. So... I wanted to do it because I wanted a tape of me with gray hair performing it. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I need this tool for my corporate market. That's how spiritually locked in I was. <laughs> yeah, you're trying, to make a, you're trying to make a marketing tool, not like something for... for Except that it was a great audience. And right from the start, you, you felt something. But those performances don't happen very often. Sure, where everything clicks. It's very, very rare where you just get up on the wave and you just surf it. Yeah. And it happened to be in a beautifully dressed stage with eight cameras and a full house 
And I mean, just this incredible concert setting. I knew, I said, I, th- I'll get a, if I do this okay, I'll get a, a great piece of tape out of it. And it was pretty much fl- flawless. Somebody even write, wrote me an email about it after it went viral and said, I saw that look of relief cross your <laughs> face right at that one point at the after the guitar solos or whatever, right? Yeah. But I didn't think twice about it. I just put it up on a website. And then YouTube came around. I think YouTube started in late 2005. I'm not sure, but I remember. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's only been around that long, Yeah. right? Or maybe even early 2000. It seems like it's been with us forever. I know. So sometime around uh, January, I started getting a few emails about this video, people seeing this video. I had no idea what it was. I didn't know what YouTube was. Right. And then it went from three or four a week to three or four a day, and then it started being 10, 12. I mean, and I thought this will last about six weeks, and that'll be that, right? But you weren't getting any, any payment or anything. This was just... No, no, it, no, can't get payment. Don't have the rights to the music. Right, <laughs> right, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, my uh, website's crashing. Just too much traffic. Because somebody, so, so somebody's posted this link out on YouTube, right. and it's getting passed around virally. And even though your server, your web server, people always say that uh, they guarantee you uh, unlimited bandwidth, but that means unlimited within whatever bandwidth they own. Yeah. So the server, so it's crashing, like two, three times crashing. And they increased a little capacity for me because they like the blah, blah, right? Yeah. Then I had to find, uh, and I still haven't heard of YouTube. So then my friend uh, Wayne Cotter tells me he has a friend who has a big pipeline server that won't crash. Yeah, I love Wayne Cotter. Great guy. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And so I go on that for the month of March. And there were... 20 terabytes of downloads in the month of March. I don't know what that means. It means uh, at least 20 million people. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But I had to pay $10,000 for that bandwidth. You did? Yeah, because I this was a great thing. I just wanted to keep it going. It was fun. It was helping my corporate market. Right. Uh, but it was crashing my server. I needed, Then somebody tells me, don't you know about YouTube? I'm going to put this on YouTube. And so then it went over to YouTube. And yeah. it just was being seen all over the place for months, really for about 18 months. Oh, so you're getting 20 million on your on your personal site. So this is even no. before YouTube. Oh, I see. No, oh, I, I didn't you. know anything about YouTube oh. or viral anything. And it was incredible. I got Ringo Starr put it on his website. That was pretty cool. Now, that, that, that medley, is that a, a medley that exists or, or is that? Yeah, that's the last five minutes of Abbey Road. Why the Beatles? Why those songs? Well, that has a lot of rhythm changes and a lot of and a, a drum solo that I can uh, that, uh, that I can I can't do that Ginger Baker drum solo. I couldn't do it then. Yeah. So it's it has mo- different movements and it it is a medley, so it has different rhythmic elements. So it has everything that captures my approach to to juggling. Right. So it was like the perfect piece. It was the last piece that I was juggling. Yeah. It's the only piece that was left in my act. It was a great closing. It's an incredible piece of music. Yeah. I actually did get a call from, I guess it's Sony's, whoever owned the publishing rights. At some point, calls, mm-hmm. I get a call from their lawyer. Yeah. They said, you know, you're publishing, technically you're publishing on the web. You're not allowed to do this. And I said, hey, what do you want me to do? I, I said, I've gotten thousands of requests for DVDs and I tell everybody to sell DVDs. I tell everybody the same thing. I can't sell you anything. I right. do not own the rights to this music. <laughs> I said, I didn't even put it out there. It was just sitting on my website, and now it's out on the web. Yeah. What do you want me to do? And it was interesting. He, he told me, he said, call this number, call this woman in our office in Los Angeles, and call me back after you've spoken to her. Okay. So I call, 
I get a voicemail, I leave a message. I go to Ireland to do a show with Bob Geldof. <laughs> right. Pretty incredible. Do a conference, a speech. I wasn't even juggling at that. Oh, nice. Was, okay. Right. Come back. I call her again. I call her again. She doesn't call me back. I call a guy back in New York and I said, what do you want me to do? I called this woman three times and she doesn't return the call. And he said, listen very carefully to me. Call me back after you have spoken to her. In other words, she was never going to call me back. Oh, he was just doing his due diligence by telling me to call her and they weren't going to bother me. I got you. So basically, it's basically go away. The video stayed up for 10 years or more. I think it's been taken down most places. You know, the algorithm finally shot it down, but it, it was up there for forever. And what were some of the, the responses? Like, obviously, there was a lot of good promotion for your business, a lot of good corporate. Because you got to really into comedy. People don't realize that from the juggling standpoint, you're probably more known as a comedian than as a juggler. Is that fair to say? Uh, well, certainly. And, and certainly in 2006, when this was happening. Yeah. I got like six or eight offers to join the circus. Okay. I'm not kidding. <laughs> it's like, hey, thanks, guys. Yeah. At that point, I'm 54 years old. Yeah. I was 50 years old when, for the performance. So, you know what? This is what was remarkable. You'll appreciate this, Daniel. Mm -hmm. It was four months before, because I got all these emails. That's it's so long ago, people would contact you. There's no Instagram. Right. I got like, uh, I got, I don't know, 25,000 emails. All right. Wow. Okay. And it was four months before I got the first ball joke. What do you mean? That before someone actually it sent a sent a ball joke email, which was you should juggle my balls in your mouth. Really? And it's the only one I got in all of those emails. And I just burst out laughing because it was like it took four months before that. Nowadays it takes like four minutes, you know. That's what I would have thought. I remember when I saw uh I was just kind of sidetracking, but it was um Greg Kennedy. He invented the cone where he juggles inside of a cone and he sold the idea to Cirque du Soleil. It's like he's inside of a big plexiglass cone and he rolls the balls inside the walls of the cone. Didn't Michael Motion do something inside a triangle? He did it in triangle, but this was, this was, uh, that was sort of the use of, of kind of, you know, uh, pieces of equipment to sort of add to the juggling. And Michael Motion with the triangle was one of the first to use sort of outside architecture along with the juggling. And that inspired Greg Kennedy to do this thing inside of a cone. Yeah. So instead of bouncing, it was sort of, you know, rolling around the inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great idea. I remember thinking, what a great idea. I remember I watched it on YouTube. Like the second comment was, I hope that blank, and they use a slang for a, a gay person, suffocates in there. And I thought, wow, you see this brilliant piece of material, and that's what you you decide to say. So I thought, wow, that's so wrong that people are able to sort of snipe at you from the distance from your creative work. I'm getting out of order here because I was going to talk about this later, but uh, you were going to talk about this later. But I did that talk on the TED Talk. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is the trolls are everywhere, right? Yeah. If you read the comment stream on te after people's TED Talks, you'll get the, there will be some trolling in there unless it's unless it's some hopelessly feel good talk, which I'm not capable. <laughs> you know, but even that was funny. The talk itself was about the the uh, extreme difficulty of, of reasonably thorough communication, of actual communication between people. And then I'm getting all these trolling comments that are just proving that I've obviously not communicated what I was trying to. <laughs> well, it's, it's so strange that when there was the backlash too, I thought you did something very positive for juggling. I thought anytime someone produces something where people are like, wow, juggling is entertaining. I like juggling. You know, you, you brought something to the world where people were for a while were saying, juggling is cool. Have you seen this guy juggling? But there definitely was some backlash from the juggling community 
because they felt you were getting more credit than you deserved. Did you did you feel some of that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm not technically I'm not some great uh, accomplished juggler. Never was. Now, were you still using tennis balls, right? It's just empty tennis balls. Yeah, they're just tennis balls. Yeah. But you're doing something different. Like, did you actually feel like you were visually interpreting the song? Like, cause you would repeat like the chorus. It was all about climbing into that emotion yeah. and getting, getting as deep in as I possibly could. So while you're juggling in that moment, how are you feeling as you're interpreting it? Are you trying to really stretch out these things to really hit the different pieces of music or is it just kind of more free, free flowing than that? I'm still not thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch the next day. I never got to that point. It used to be totally improv. Oh, it was. Then since it's just this one piece, it's pretty much choreographed. That's a little bit of a grand term for it. Now, I pretty much know what I'm going to do at each point. But then there is that variable of sometimes you just got the physicality. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes that is just a transcendent thing. Then it's really fun. And sometimes you're just performing it. You're doing it as, as well as you can. And you're, and you're staying in the moment and you're listening to the music. You're giving it what you've got. But the times that... I mean, when you if you do something 20,000 times or however, mm -hmm. trying to keep in the moment in it is not easy. Well, especially juggling, because you can't let your mind wander too much into, into what you're having for dinner or something like that. It is still a very physical activity which has to be controlled. I once played John Esquaga's Nugget in Sparks, Nevada, all right, up by Reno. And you were there. You actually were, you followed the elephant act. Yeah. Okay. I remember that. Yeah. Dan Menendez told me about that one. I never worked it, but we followed the elephant. Yeah. And you walk out onto a runway out to a, that goes out into the middle of the crowd. And you're literally there so they can clean up after the elephants and then set up Tony Orlando and Dawn. Right. Showbiz. And I once did 28 straight shows without dropping a ball. Nice. But I was doing mostly stand up. I was only doing that Beatles piece. Yeah. Right. But by the end of that second week, every single show, all I could think about while I was juggling was, don't drop a ball, don't drop a And then I'd be laughing at myself because I'd be going, so I'm having this internal conversation with myself about, uh, come on, this is negative thinking. You'll be sure you'll drop a ball if you keep talking. And of course, it didn't. I mean, it was, so your mind can wander within certain parameters. What about doing some like of those TV shows? Like I saw you, you did the, that routine on Letterman. Oh, that was so much fun. Was that good? That was a good spot for you. I remember seeing that. I forget who he called, some old agent of mine. I don't know. I got this call from Fat Boy Slim's people right. saying he wants you to do his video. And I went, oh, okay. You know, cool. And I went to New York and shot it. And they didn't like the New York shoot. I liked it better. And then went to LA and shot it at a different theater. And that's the one that they put with the music for his song. And I thought, that's that. And I thought, that's fun. That was great. And then I get this call. Chris, uh, Fatboy Slim wants to know if you'd be interested in performing that song live on Letterman with him. <laughs> right? Would like I? Fun. Yeah, sounds like fun to me. And it yeah. was just like, are you kidding? So he's, I forget Norman's last name. His name's Norman something. And he's so cool. He, the night before, he and me and the singer who's rapping the song is a guy named Keith from the Bay Area. He says, please have dinner with me at this restaurant I own part of in New York. So we go out with him there. Nice. And he's the nicest guy in the world. He's never met me. He's never met Latif. Right. Okay. The guy who sang the music he's never met. He's a guy that only likes to, that writes really good R&B stuff and wants to shine the light on other people. It's interesting. But he really is that person. So then we go over and we rehearse it once. And they use the rehearsal. You could tell later when you watch it. This is so interesting to me. They used the rehearsal to completely block the piece. 
as far as okay. cameras. Right, right, right. They've got it. And Paul Schaefer has brought in six gospel singers to sing back up. Nice. Right? Yeah. And then we walk out and we performed it. And it's the last thing on the show and everybody nailed it. So it was just exciting. <laughs> That's showbiz, right? That's when you're really in showbiz. Like, like you can do these corporate events where you're making good money and you're, you know, you're, you're on stage, but those moments of real show business, like when you're with other performers, you're on TV. To me, that's the exciting stuff. The money-making stuff is nice, but those moments of, of real showbiz, being on the, on the Letterman show. Well, I was live with the band. I'd never been live. I probably did something right at the very, very beginning with my friends who were in the band that I was traveling with. But I mean, live on Letterman with the Paul Schaefer <laughs> band. Give me a break. And I don't think you missed, didn't you? I don't think you missed on that one. It sounded like you seemed like you did a perfect show. You know what? I missed one ball, and he wasn't blocked on me at that time. The camera right. angle was on uh, Fat Boy or the gospel singers or something else. Now, Fat Boy Slim, he had a contest, too. Was that the song? Was it uh, that old pair of jeans, or that was... I know he had a, a, a contest where people could submit. It was that old pair of jeans, and I heard about the contest later, and I don't know anything about it. Yeah, there was a guy. I looked it up. There was this guy, John Augustus Tate, was the winner. So I guess there was another video or some uh, some. I think there must have been. I think before. I think at first he did a contest thing, and then he saw the that Beatles video and said, "Would you do this?" And I said, "Sure." But also there was another video that came out. This was called the the Dis Bliss. Uh, Jason Garfield put it out, and he seemed to be like your most uh, vocal detractor. What would you think about that? Was that just fun, or did you actually take some offense at that? You know, it's so funny. I don't know who first told me about that. And I was having, it was such a positive experience. I'm getting these emails from all over the world, uh, getting emails from people because of the music. I mean, it's a very positive, powerful, hopeful piece of music. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm getting emails from humanitarian aid workers in African refugee camps who know their kids aren't going home, which is the lyric in the song, right? I'm getting all this incredible stuff that's just um, super positive. And then somebody tells me about this video, right? I don't think I watched more than like a minute, minute and 15, whatever, right? Right, right, right. Because I, I thought to myself, well, what do I want to watch this for? This is negative. Yeah. And then later a friend of mine told me that the, uh, he said, you don't need to worry about Jason Garfield. The uh, hippies have beaten him down on <laughs> whatever social media network it was, MySpace. Right, right. Yeah. Don't worry about Jason. The hippies have beaten him down already. And then I was talking to Penn. Mm-hmm about the Bill of Rights Project, because he's big about that stuff. Right. And uh, I don't know him very well, but he did a favor for me for that project, which was very nice of him. And he told me he put Jason up to it. Well, they're good friends, uh, Penchelet and Jason Garfield. Yeah. He said Jason was living in his basement, <laughs> and he just knew it, that this video would make him crazy. So he said, I put, I poked, I put him up to it. Yeah, his thing was to do everything you did with five balls. Uh, here he's a pretty good guy, Jason. So, Well, he's trying to do good things for juggling. And the idea of like creating a viral video that no matter what, no matter what you feel about it, it's not an easy thing to do. It's like a, it's like a unicorn. Well, and in my case, it was totally a unicorn. I was not trying to create anything. The video has been sitting on a website for four years. It just went viral because viral had just happened, you know? So to me, the whole thing was a complete accident. There was no plan behind it. I know. So, so to, to rail against that and say, people shouldn't like this because there's better juggling. You know, there's, there's, sure, there's Anthony Gatto, but Anthony Gatto and you are providing two different things. It's not a contest between technical juggling and, and juggling that, that makes people happy. 
I met him once. He's a, a, at least, and I, again, these are people I, I've never met Jason. I've only uh-huh. heard about him. And I met Anthony once. I thought he was an extremely nice guy. I thought I was so afraid to meet Anthony Gatto, and not because of his juggling, because right. I was afraid to see what happened to a kid that started off performing with his what it was his uncle or something when he was three years old. His dad, yeah. I thought he has to have child star stuff, just horrible bad. And and he's a really nice guy. Well, you see, what happened with him is he basically turned his back on on juggling. He sort of really felt like juggling kind of took part of his childhood, and he kind of was in it. Because that's what he did. He didn't really love it, I guess. But he seemed to come out okay. That makes me happy. Oh, yeah. I think I think he's a great guy. I think. Yeah. And again, I only met him the one time, but I was expecting this completely just... Oh, no. Macaulay Cole. He's not Corey Feldman. He's not... No, he's really <laughs> solid, and I was... It just made me happy. And I like what he's done. Like, he's now moved on. He has a concrete business. He has a family and a house in Florida. He's put juggling behind him, which I totally respect. And a lot of people are like, oh, you can't do that. You can't walk away. Sure he can. Good for him, you know. If he's having a good life, he's a good man, and he's done a lot for juggling, and I only wish him the best, you know. So. And it sounds like Jason, I mean, these are fun ideas. I can see how, they, how they'd how uh, they sell. Well, now he wants to get juggling in the Olympics. So, sure, you know, I'll support that. I don't think, I think it's kind of a pipe dream. I don't think it's very practical. But, Look, uh, what's the one where they ski and shoot an arrow and that's in the yeah, Olympics? The biathlon, I think it is, yeah. Yeah, and and uh, wait a minute, synchronized swimming is in the Olympics. And curling, the one where they we push the thing down the ice and they're sweeping behind it. Yeah, and if you combine those three... I think it could be done, it just... It would give the Eastern Europeans another shot at a gold. Exactly, exactly, I think so. <laughs> Hey, let's move on a little bit. I wanted to finish up the Michael Motion conversation. Please, please. Because I have an idea for jugglers. Okay. And by the way, that triangle thing, I drew that up when I was a hippie, but I knew I would never work hard enough to do what he did. But I literally drew that up and somebody told me about it. And that's when I thought, this is the guy I need to get this idea for. Okay. So uh, it's called The China Shop and you can tell what it is right there. And it's a short film. It's not the bull in the China Shop. It's a juggler in a China Shop. (laughs) Okay. Right. But it opens up with a guy and his gal. I always see them in a convertible, but I'm not sure why. But they're headed to the china shop to pick out their wedding china. Okay. And she's making him promise to be good. Right, right. All right. And you have no idea what she's talking about. And they get there and the uh, unctuous salesman shows her some things at the various displays around the china. Some glassware, some plates, some cups and saucers. No, no, this really isn't what we're looking for. So he says, well, I have some other uh, stuff in the back that I can show you, some other books I can show you in the back. Why don't you come back and look? So they disappear. And then you see the juggler in the china shop. Starts off very slow, one item, (laughs) whatever it is, right? Right. And then just goes through the china shop to the best of his ability. It could be her ability if you want to uh, role play. You don't even have to switch, damn it. It can be gay couple getting married. I don't care. Sure. That's not the point. The idea is a juggler in a china shop. It could be that guy in the cone getting married. I, <laughs> I don't hope care. he suffocates. I hope that guy suffocates. And then as he's finishing up the performance, puts the last piece back where it came from. Yeah. And they come back out completely unaware of the dance that he's just done juggling in the china shop. Right. Mm-hmm. Shake hands, shake hands. But this is the thing that you have to have prepped. OK. What is the anticipation during this entire thing that he's doing as a performance? Well, I'm just waiting for him to destroy everything, right? Like the, like the bull in the china shop. On the way out. He, he bumps something? On yeah. the way out, he trips on something. <laughs> and the whole thing dominoes and destroys the entire place. 
Well, that could be done. You could certainly produce that as a short little film. That could be a Chris Bliss. It would be a lot of work, but somebody please go out because I want to see it. I can see it in my head. I don't <laughs> have the time and never had the ability. I tried to give that to Michael Motion's manager up in Montreal. I told him, this is a great idea, and Michael's the kind of guy who could do it, which he could. But I understand why artists don't really want to do what they want to do. I always had a very uh, sort of a weird thought about his career, Michael Motion. Like, to me, that, there's been a few times when juggling kind of, kind of became something. Like, certainly during your video, yep. uh, when Michael Motion had won the, the Genius Grant. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like, when the Karamazov brothers had their, their HBO special. Yep. But no one's ever been able to parlay. No one's ever been able to take those moments and really go to that next level, you know, go through that door. Like, Michael Motion just seemed to disappear. Like, he won that award, and then just vanished. I don't know. I don't know what happened with his career. I think he lost interest, and there may not be another level to go to. For a you know, it's like you were saying. You know, people can name you uh, David Blaine and Copperfield and uh, Houdini and uh, who's the other one you mentioned? Uh, probably Chris Angel, like one of those kind Chris of guys. Chris Angel. Yeah. We should put Penn and Teller in there, but people can name you famous musicians, uh, magicians. I mean, but sure. they can't name you. You know, I just don't think there's another level there. I think because it's hard to to, to incorporate the juggler into something. Like, if you look at, like, Harry Anderson in Night Court, like, uh, you know, he started on Cheers, where they brought him in as sort of a con man. It's hard to bring the juggler into, an, into a scene. Like, what's the, what's the juggler doing there? There's no organic way to do it. No. And then what's he going to do, juggle? Now he's juggling. It just, it just doesn't fit anything, really, other than what it is, which is juggling. You know? Yeah, did you? I mean, I always wanted to be good at what I was doing, but I never, I shouldn't say this. Well, the idea of taking pride in them. Hey, look how good I am. But that never made any sense to me. Well, it seems to me that you were more of a showbiz guy in that, first of all, you, you got very into stand-up and it became the point where this routine just became your closer. So you went from juggler to basically stand-up with a really solid closing routine. And now it seems like you're involved in some other things. Let's have, let's talk about this Bill of Rights. How'd you get involved with the, the Bill of Rights Monument Project? What, what's that about? And if people want to see it, they just go to BillOfRightsMonumentProject.org. I was doing a joke about it. I wish I could say during the culture wars, but they've just become so much worse. Yeah. But the joke was about, back then it was the Ten Commandments that was, uh, can you have the Ten Commandments up on public ground, blah, blah, right? Right. And I said, instead of arguing over taking the Ten Commandments down, why don't we put the Bill of Rights up next to it and let people comparison shop because the Bill of Rights gives you an amazing deal. It tells you speak freely, you can carry a gun, and uh, you get due process and you're presumed innocent. And I said, my uh, religion doesn't give me that deal, the presumed right. innocent part anyway, right? So it's just a throwaway joke. And then I started looking around. I saw there were no monuments of the Bill of Rights up anywhere. And I thought, well, this can't be very hard. But it turns out it's really hard to build monuments. <laughs> now, I, I understand this idea of you're saying there's no monuments to the Bill of Rights up. But why did you decide you were the guy to remedy that? I mean, did you do you have a special feeling about the Bill of Rights? How how did this come about? I thought it was a great idea. I thought it was a really nice, simple idea. I didn't really understand anything about nonprofit work or all the process involved in it. But I also was trying to find something, a common ground thing. I was trying to find something that would trump the culture wars. It sounds naive now. Yeah. It was the exact same time that the video was happening. So I tried to turn that wave of publicity from the viral video towards this Bill of Rights Monument project. And it actually helped get the first uh, authorization through blah, 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 because people were familiar with that. I like the idea. It's so simple. You put the Bill of Rights up, monuments up at every state capital in the country. One and a half million school kids see it every year. Mm -hmm. 
if it's at every state capital. These are sort of the principles. These are the ideas. It doesn't matter if who wrote it. It just matters if the ideas have validity. Bill of Rights, hugely successful set of ideas. And so it just appealed to me. It's the highest in its field, the Bill of Rights. It's probably the most famous human rights, most successful human rights document ever. So it's a simple thing. It's less than 500 words. And what kind of pushback did you get? Did people actually say, no, we don't want the Bill of Rights monument? I mean... No, it's just hard to raise money for monuments. Hard to raise money. No, you don't get any uh, pushback. And I also wanted a nonpartisan project. Yeah. I started, I wanted to stay with it. Once people start sending you money, even if it's $15, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I've never had that happen before. Suddenly you've got people that you're responsible to deliver on what you're talking about. Sure, if you have integrity, yeah. Yeah, we finished the one in Arizona. That was an amazing project. I've got one working at the Oklahoma Capitol, but it's just very hard to raise the money for it. The designs are totally different. I mean, it's really, it's interesting, but there are very few monuments to ideas. This is one of the problems in the monument landscape. Monuments are usually put up because somebody has a connection or because there's an organization that uh, pre-existing veterans organizations, of course, we want to celebrate the veterans, okay? If you will look for monuments to ideas, you're going to find the Statue of Liberty. Well, it seems also there's lots of monuments now that are being torn down because of the the, the culture nowadays. Do you think that's something that makes sense? Or should we honor our past by leaving these things up there? or tear them down because of the things they represent? I'm not sure what the solution is. I've never seen a country that uh, did well after raging mobs started tearing down, <laughs> started tearing down the, uh, the monuments of the last guy. Yeah, It never works. It's a bad sign when you've gone to the raging mob stage. And I think we don't need any more raging mobs in America to, to say what the hell are these things still doing here. Most people don't realize that most of these Civil War memorials put up uh, to thumb their nose at the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s. They haven't yeah. been sitting around for 100 years. Some of them have. No, they were put up to sort of show once again, we're still we're still above you. We're still we're still here. Right. It was sort of a it was sort of a monument, but also a, a sign or a signal. And there were monuments at three different capitals in the South. And the first time I read this, I didn't know the story at all. I just thought it was funny. At three different capitals in the South, and also in New York City, there were statues of a gyne- of the same gynecologist. For, for what? And if you read this guy's story, he p- experimented on uh, black women. I mean, it's unconscionable what this guy did. And, how, and he, he got the monuments up because, who knows, because he had a friend in the legislature. Right, right, so right. So there's a lot of reasons to look over the monument landscape. But one thing that's missing from the monument landscape is ideas. right. And the American experiment is supposedly supposed to be fueled by ideas and principles. And the Bill of Rights is the most elegant, simple, 500-word description of them. And it's a pretty good document. It's a pretty good blueprint. And it's held up very well in 200-plus years. It's become a global template for human rights. You could put it in monumental form, just like the Statue of Liberty. And monuments have an impact. Have you ever seen the Vietnam Memorial in Washington? Yes. Yes. Very powerful. Unbelievable. And I have to admit, I actually looked up the Bill of Rights just to make sure I knew what it was before we talked. You didn't think it was like the Passenger's Bill of Rights and you were going to go, and I'm all for that because both of us have flown a lot. And I mean, (laughs) really, the airlines need to give us some rights. No, I just wasn't sure I knew everything on it or how many there were. You know, I didn't know it was the first 10, you know, amendments. When I get the chance to talk about what you've just given me, the Bill of Rights is a very simple document in one way. The guiding Uh, energy behind the Bill of Rights, the great insight of the Bill of Rights is that concentrations of power 
are inherently abusive to individual liberty. It doesn't matter where those concentrations are, where it doesn't matter what kind of power is concentrated, right? It can be economic power, it can be religious power, it can be military power, but a concentration of power, too much power in too few hands is bad for individual liberty. And that's the underlying insight in the Bill of Rights. And it's a pretty good way to look at things that are wrong and go, well, this is because too much power is in too few hands. There's no so it's a, well, it's a pretty simple document in that way. It's, it's, so for me, it appeals to me on that. And I hope we'll be able to finish Oklahoma. I'm not sure what will happen after that. It's a very difficult thing. Well, I really, I think it's great. I think what you're doing is great. And I think the way you describe it is really forceful. And, and I totally understand what you're going for. And I wish you well with that. Let's, let's finish up with a little bit more juggling talk. And then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Actually, let's talk a little bit more about comedy because... We do have a lot of comedy jugglers and comedy performers. And now, of course, we're going through a very difficult time, not only because of the virus, but also because of what you would call cancel culture. How have you sort of seen your career in comedy change over these last couple of years? And what do you think is going to happen in the future, like once this virus gets behind us? Do you see the return to live performing or what do you see in the future? The future or my future? Well, just the future in comedy, the future of juggling, the future of performing. The future. There's a historian named Douglas Brinkley who uh, became friends with Dylan. He interviewed Dylan after his last album last year during the pandemic. And he asked Dylan if people like Prine and all those people passing would made him think more about his own mortality. Mm-hmm. And Dylan said, yeah, I think about mortality more, but mostly in terms of the death of the human race. <laughs> So I think I'm a little bit lighter on the side of uh, the future of comedy, though. I was thinking, could we have gotten to the stand-up comedy we have today with cancel culture? Do you think so? No, not at all. I mean, not even. Look at someone like Andrew Dice Clay. Like he would just come out. You just go, no, we can't have that. As a Bill of Rights guy, but even just as a First Amendment, I'm persuaded by the argument that the answer to free speech you don't like is more free speech. I'm persuaded. Nobody wants to be told what to say, and certainly nobody wants to be told what to think. Yeah. And if you can't speak freely, you can't think clearly, including saying stupid And guess what? This offensive speech, shine the light on it. People will do what they've always done. They'll turn their backs on it. But this cancel culture thing is... uh, Well, it seems to me there's two kind of cancel cultures. There's like what you say... And then there's sometimes there's what you do. Like there seems to be a lot of actually sexual improprieties that are coming to light and people are canceled because of, of their behavior. But to be canceled like this uh, Gina Corona, I think she's, um, I don't know really much about it, but she, she made some, some posts uh, on Twitter or on the internet about her opinions. And they weren't very popular opinions, but her entire career now has been canceled because of that. Well, the career that she had has been canceled, but maybe she'll wind up getting to ride the right-wing gravy train. Maybe she'll be the next Ann Coulter. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. look, uh, Disney has a right if it's Disney. I don't even know who it is, but you have a right to go, geez, we really can't. <laughs> You're bad for the brand. Right. Freedom, uh, Free speech has absolutely zero to do with companies having to hire you. It's about political speech. Sure. But when you start uh, trying to pull through the book burning equivalent of cancel culture, taking it backwards. And, and it's like you said, for things that you do, I mean, that's that's a different. If people are going to look at you differently, that's fine. I think as a comedian, you have to let your mind go anywhere. Yeah. You don't have to say it all on stage. OK. And subtext is more important than text. And that's a difficult thing to demonstrate. But I would just say that people know the difference. For example, when Michael Richards did that really stupid thing, this is a long time ago. 
Sure, he in the in the Carnaby Club when he, the hecklers got to him and he started using racial epithets and. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. Where was that? That was at the Laugh Factory in L.A. Yeah, in L.A. Yeah. And he started, you know, and it was like the real thing that was wrong with that. I don't think he's done comedy since. You could call that cancel culture if you want, except that the problem was it wasn't funny. Right. But he, but he made it. He, he tried to be funny. Yeah. His subtext was desperation, not humor. Yeah. Right. And he tried to wrap himself in the mantle of Lenny Bruce and he's not Lenny Bruce. You, you know who Daniel Tosh is? Yes. Tosh 2.0. Yeah. yeah, and he got in trouble for uh, a quote-unquote uh, rape joke at uh, the Comedy and Magic Club in her most speech. Yeah. But Daniel's not that person. No, I saw him work there, and to me, I thought he was great. Because I liked his comedy because it was outrageous. Yeah, and, and he, Ben, because his subtext is clean on that joke, yeah. it didn't take him out. I, I think people are perfectly, it's perfectly fine if something horrible about a person's character gets exposed and people don't feel like supporting them anymore. A comic who doesn't say the wrong thing sometimes, it probably isn't saying anything. Exactly. If you're not pushing some boundaries, who do, who do you end up being? What comic can you mention is just so, doesn't offend anybody. It's totally not comedy. And again, you write stuff. I mean, I have written stuff that made me laugh out loud. Like, I can't ever say that. I can't say that. I might be able to give it to somebody else to say. Right. But I can't say that. But they're still funny. I know why, you know, and as a writer, you know, you go, that's funny. I know why it's funny. I know why I'll never say it. Well, plus also when you look at the juggling comedy, like nobody hires a juggler to be controversial. Like when you're doing corporates and things, you know how these corporate events are. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they want to laugh, but they don't want controversial laughs. They don't want to feel that they're going to get in some kind of trouble for hiring you. Well, I also don't think, I mean, I think I, I would say the same thing about juggling and comedy that I would say about within a comedian's own act. You can throw in a, a wry comment that you say is controversial or political inside of a juggling context, context. But if you're juggling at the same time that you're uh, doing humor, yeah. That restricts the kind of humor you can do because you, people can only work within a certain bandwidth, within a certain wavelength is a better term. And if you've got this one thing that is just this physically that, 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 that has no deeper meaning to it, you can't really combine it well with if you're making it a visual pun and trying to put a really hard hitting line with it, you can't have both. You're working on two different levels at the same time. They don't mesh. It's like you can't go out and talk to an audience that you just broke up with your girlfriend which didn't happen. You can't tell five minutes of lies about your personal life and then start talking about talking about the real world because you have no credibility with the audience to talk about the real world. They know you've just been making up until that point. You can have an arc within a show of different levels, the stupid, the funny, the goofy, the dead serious, the hard to listen to, the jokes that make you cry. That's what Daisy always is saying about some of my material. But you have to, but you can't jump between levels. You can go up and you can go down, but you can't just jump all over the place. It doesn't work. People don't receive communication that way. Well, this is very much like your talk over the TED Talk, because it was all about communication, using comedy as a translation tool. Was that your TED Talk? Yeah. Well, and actually learning from comedy. Oh, this is how I always thought it was the words on the page, Daniel. That's how stupid I was. And it isn't the words on the page. Communicate. You learn a lot about the way people do and don't receive ideas and emotions from doing any kind of performing in front of a live audience, don't you? Well, I mean, if we go back once again to your video, when you're juggling, there's something that you're projecting, like through your being. You're not saying anything. But I think one reason that became so popular is because people could see your feeling 
Yeah. Through your activity. Yeah, the subtext. Yeah, in that case, the emotional subtext of the performance was crystal clear. Yeah, so when you're talking about communication about the written page, we talk about so much how much nonverbal communication goes on, how much the backstory of the person talking goes on. Like you're saying about Daniel Tosh, if you know this guy's a good guy and he has a line that crosses the line about something, you can say, oh, no, that doesn't represent him as a person. And the audience knows he's a good guy. Even if they've never seen him before, they know they feel he's a good guy. It isn't said with some gratuitous hostility. I mean, it's just something that it's just a joke that didn't work. It's not giving you some deep insight into his character. But that being said, let's wrap this up, Chris. And thank goodness, right? Thank <laughs> exactly. goodness because of cancel culture and the Me Too movement. It didn't get either one of us, did it, Daniel? It didn't because we're both good guys. And even though we might have said a, a thing or two here or there that maybe taken out of context might have gotten us uh, canceled, they never caught us, right? So. Although I heard that you're married to a Karen, so. I am married to a Karen. That's true. And what is your wife's yeah. name? Daisy. Daisy. Well, all my best to you and Daisy, Chris. And thank you so much for being on the Drop Everything podcast. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on your viral moment. And best of luck with the Bill of Rights Monument Project. Thank you, Mr. Chris Bliss. Thank you, Chris. Hey, thanks, Daniel. Thank you for listening to Drop Everything podcast number 93. My conversation with Chris Bliss. To find out more about Chris's Bill of Rights Monument Project, go to billofrightsmonumentproject.org. Thank you, Chris. And thanks to our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Go to juggle.org to find out about this great group of jugglers. All right, everybody, go out there and drop everything, except when you're juggling.